Reflections on Shakespeare's King Lear by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Well, I admit that it's an arbitrary distinction, artificial one, this distinction between the story and the plot, but in the title of what we're uh, doing, we have the distinction, the worthy story confused with dubious plots. And so I want to hang on to that as, a, as an admittedly artificial, but I hope a somewhat useful tool for uh, assessing the, the human predicament. Shakespeare, of course, was a literary master, which means that he knew how to tell. Uh, he, he told the stories, usually the stories of the sordid and dubious plots, uh, but he told them in such a way as to uh, a- as to indicate its uh, critical and sometimes breathtaking moments in their presentation, uh, how minuscule they were in comparison to some other larger story, uh, the existence of which most people who were caught up in the plots uh, were unaware of. So if we want to, to get something of the story and something of the plots at the same time, Shakespeare is a good place to go. In order to uh, sort of get a sense of how Shakespeare might want us to uh, appreciate the story and the plot, I brought a little passage from Cymbeline, Shakespeare's Cymbeline. And in that play, uh, old Bellarius, who's a nobleman who has been banished by Cymbeline, uh, kidnapped the king's two sons and raised them in the country. And he's telling at this point in the play about how it was, what it was like when he told stories to these stories of his own uh, former life of adventure and bravery to these two uh, young members of the royal family. And here's how he put it. This Polydor, the heir of Cymbeline in Britain, who the king his father called Guiderius, Jove, when on my three-foot stool I sit and tell the warlike feats I have done, his spirits fly out into my story. Say, thus mine enemy fell, and thus I set my foot on his neck. Even then the princely blood flows to the cheek. He sweats, strains his young nerves, and puts himself in posture that acts my words. So he just gets into it. And notice... He, uh, he identifies with the contest and the struggle and uh, chooses the side that he is on and uh, even in his own body begins to have the, the affects, you see, uh, the sweating and the posture and the tension and the flushed cheeks and he just gets into it. That's the older brother. The younger brother, Codwall, once are vigorous in as like a figure strikes life into my speech and shows much more his own conceiving. Doesn't say much about Codwall's response, but it's clear that Shakespeare is making a a distinction. Now, there's over and over in Shakespeare, you have uh, essentially an ongoing uh, wink or in-joke between Shakespeare and his friends in, in the theater. He spent his life in the theater. And... Those people backstage who prepare the, the spectacle, you see, understand it how it works better than the people in the audience. 
And they know because, after all, it was, among other things, a commercial uh, operation, uh, they know what uh, brings the crowd in. And they know that without that, uh, the play won't go on. And uh, Shakespeare is a master at, at, uh, at bringing these things in. Uh, in the Elizabethan theater, there was, there was the, what, what, what today would be the bleachers, which was the, the, uh, where the groundlings, called the groundlings, they paid a penny to get in, and they came to hoot and holler at the, uh, at the plots, essentially, to be caught up in the plots, the intrigue of the plot. And then there, and Shakespeare wrote to them. But he was a great creative artist, and he also wrote to people who had some sense that there was a bigger story than the story that's going on uh, in the plots. And, and I think it is uh, it's Polydore who is represents those who are caught up in the contest, in the plots. And, and Cadwall, who represents someone who begins to appreciate the, the depiction or the scene or the play or the story in another way and, be, and uh, is outside of it, much more outside of it than Polydore, and able to, as he says, strike life into my speech and show much more his own conceiving. In other words, Polydor is a much more mimetic creature. He sees what's being depicted, and lo and behold, he, all the affects appropriate to the scene he's witnessing begin to replicate themselves in him. And he gets, as we say, caught up in the story, in the drama. And Shakespeare, I think, had some serious misgivings about this. I think his later plays show that uh, he's, he, he feels the theater has a dubious effect in that respect. And uh, towards the end of his life, tries to write some plays that uh, provide a little bit of a corrective for that. And Codwall, uh, attentive to the story more than Polydore, uh, recognizes that uh, in the, the various players caught up in the drama of the plots uh, have something in common. There's this wonderful line in the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot where he speaks of the, so, uh, the historical contest. And, and he says, viewed from the perspective of uh, historical distance, we recognize what they could not, which is that they were united in the strife that divided them. That is a, that's an absolutely breathtaking understanding. But Eliot's uh, man enough to admit that he couldn't have recognized that had he been on the spot because those, those plots, those intrigues, those great dramas are so powerful that nobody, hardly anybody, is left outside the, the, the sweep of their, of their mandate. Uh, but he says in, in historical time, one can look back and realize that they were united in the strife which divided them, that there was a really a larger story going on. And this uh, is, the, is, the, uh, is, 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 is what Codwall can come to understand eventually. Uh, Codwall is, the, uh, is, in a way, the, the ancestor of somebody like uh, Paul Ricoeur, great hermeneutic uh, philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, who says we are the people... If uh, he's, well, first of all, he says we, we have to abandon our uh, original naivete. See, Polydor's 
naivete, his original naivete. He just gets caught up in it. So we have to abandon that, but eventually we have to recapture it and achieve something called which he calls the second naivete. Uh, but the reason I invoke Paul Ricoeur's name is because Paul Ricoeur said we are a, we are a people who, because we are the people of the book, beginning with the Bible and then with the literary uh, tradition largely built upon it, we are the people who most often uh, come to understand ourselves at the depths in the presence of the text. We come to understand ourselves in the presence of the text. And Codwell represents that. He is someone who not only hears the story, but begins to strike into it his own life and... uh, and uh, show much more his own conceiving. So it becomes a reciprocal activity, this confrontation with the story or the, or the text. Well, this is a long-winded way of saying um, that Shakespeare provides both plots and stories, and that as we go through um, King Lear, which has plots aplenty, uh, we'll want to be looking at these plots, but not be caught up in them. The plots have to do with who's in and who's out, with who's winning, who's losing, uh, who's bad, who's good, etc. And we will attend to those. But the story, the two stories, and they are intimately related, that I think we should attend to uh, simultaneously, are these. First is the story of cultural collapse. How it comes about, what it consists of, and how it might uh, find resolution. And the second one is the story of King Lear's conversion, what we might call King Lear's conversion. Or another way of putting it, because this play, by the way, is set in pagan Britain, another way of putting it is how what it, what it cost for someone to extricate themselves from the plots and wake up to the story, to the worthy story. What's involved psychologically and socially uh, in that awakening? And Lear is a classic example of that. The painful awakening from the intrigue of the plots to the larger story. Hamlet is someone who's having a hard time getting back into the plots. He's been to the University of uh, Wittenberg Uh, Universities are supposed to teach us about the universe. He's learned enough about the universe and the larger, worthier story so that when he comes back uh, to Denmark, he can't get into the plots anymore, even though he has all this provocation to do so. And so um, he notices there's a play performed by some of his friends uh, in the theater, and uh, he notices how profound the play is, and he thinks maybe if he gets it performed again, he can... Uh, get caught up like Polydor in the plot that maybe suddenly his face will flush and he will begin to sweat and he will, in other words, get back in the story. But that's not why I want to bring this. Uh, when he, he, He's witnessing a, a little play which is the story of how Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, uh, bursts in on old Priam, the king of Troy, and kills him at his sacrificial altar while his old wife Hecuba is looking on. But the moment, just as he's being about to be slaughtered, uh, this is what the speaker in the play says. For lo, his sword, now speaking of Pyrrhus, this awesome figure, 
For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. So, as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. But, as we often see against some storm, a silence in the heavens, the rack stands still, the bold wind speechless, and the orb below as hush as death. Anon, the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus's pause, aroused vengeance set him new a work, and never did the Cyclops' hammer fall on Mars's armor forged for proof turn with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now fell on Priam. I just want to call attention to that moment, uh, the moment between when the sword is in the air and when it falls, as the moment of, uh, of the, mo- the most aw- awesome moment of kingship. Uh, let me be bold and put it this way, uh, dropping the, all the nuances uh, and telescope a little piece of anthropology. Kingship uh, consists in the first instance of a selected sacrificial victim with a uh, suspended sentence. Kingship involves the sacrificial victim with a suspended sentence. Uh, one doesn't know how to... The development of the kingship is a, is a complicated thing, and I don't know enough about, about it to try to, uh, to explicate it. Uh, but there seems to have been this experience, which is that the sacrificial victim, after being selected for sacrifice, represented an awesome figure in the community. And that that awesome moment could be extended in time if the sentence were simply suspended for some period of time. So that the presence of this awesome figure uh, could be savored by the community for its culture formation uh, experience. Now, that is not going to have a whole lot to do with King Lear, but I mention it to you because it is something that is implicit in some way in the work of Shakespeare. In Richard II, uh, Richard has the following soliloquy. For God's sake, let's sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. All murdered, he said. Now, this is like the New Testament saying all the prophets were killed. Uh, It's it's not not, uh, true in the journalistic sense, but there's a truth in it. All murdered, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state. The antic is a is a little is a little antique monster uh, that's like a little gargoyle, and it's sitting inside the crown. There the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp. It's a kind of skeleton, kind of a uh, facial skeleton. Allowing, let me get the scope of this. Uh, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks. 
See, this is the, this is the plot. It allows him to participate in the plot. Now, in this sense, we're all royalty because life allows us to choose a little plot and live in it with that same kind of uh, with that same kind of zeal and conviction about its ultimate significance and so on. Allowing him a breath, a little scene to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit. As if this flesh, which walls about our life, were brass impregnable. And humored thus, comes at last, and with a little pin, bores through his castle wall and farewell king. Well, the, Shakespeare's so so keen on that understanding of what uh, kingship does, what royalty does, what, what social prestige does to us. And also how much we need it for uh, the organization of our social lives. The most brilliant commentator on Shakespeare that I know is a man named Harold Goddard, and he wrote this. From Henry VI onward, Shakespeare never ceased to be concerned with the problem of chaos, or, as we would be more likely to say today, of disintegration. Sometimes it may be no more than a hint of chaos in an outburst of individual passion or social disorder. Often, however, it is chaos under its extreme aspects of insanity or war, both of which occur in King Lear, by the way. Always the easy and obvious remedy for chaos is force. But the best force can do is to impose order, not to elicit harmony. And Shakespeare spurns such a superficial and temporizing solution. I want to take Harold Goddard's insight that Shakespeare is concerned, and I would say preoccupied, with chaos, social and cultural chaos, where it comes from, what it's all about, what its consequences are, and so on, uh, in his later plays. And I want to explore that a little bit by referring to the most famous speech on the, on the subject of chaos, which is the speech of Ulysses and Troilus and Cressida. Uh, Troilus and Cressida, of course, is a story based on the, uh, on the Iliad cycle of stories, in which uh, the, the Greeks have arrived uh, to, to fight the Trojans on the shores of Troy, and uh, they find no sooner are they, well, the war has gone on for a while, and suddenly the, there's a conflict inside the Greek camp. And so the Greeks are turning on themselves, and uh, dis- the, uh, the, the distinctions are being wiped out. We talked about this when we did the Iliad. Uh, uh, Agamemnon, who's the, the head of the confederation, is now being attacked by uh, Achilles, who's simply the most powerful warrior, uh, over fighting over a third uh, object of their affections, which is this Briseis, the concubine taken in a in, in a uh, plunder. As in Ho- as in Homer, so in Shakespeare, this figure Ulysses in in Homer uh, Odysseus uh, tries to speak to the problem, tries to hold the confederation together. And here's how Shakespeare has it. And it's, I think, uh, the more I, the more I plumb the Girardian hermeneutic, the more I think this speech is just, just, uh, just astounding. 
So I'm going to give the whole uh, relevant part of the speech to you. Uh, we could do it in a few lines, but I think we need to get the whole sweep of it. Here's what Ulysses says to his fellow Greeks and to Agamemnon. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place, insist your course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet Saul, the sun, in noble eminence enthroned and sphered amidst the other, whose medicinable eye corrects the influence of evil planets and posts like the commandment of a king, sans check, to good and bad. But when the planets in evil mixture to disorder wander, what plagues, what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of the earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate the unity and married calm of states quite from their fixtures. Collapse of order. Oh, when degree is shaken, which is the latter of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. Shakespeare's word for this is degree. Sherard talks about the crisis of distinction or the crisis of degree. How could communities, when degree is shaken, how could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenity and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic play. A degree means a hierarchical structure of, of, of cultural life. And people understand what their place is and how they fit into the whole pattern. And they, and they don't develop jealousies and, in, and envious rivalries with people in other stations. Shakespeare says, or Ulysses says, uh, take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere oppugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather, right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their name. And so should justice too. Then everything itself, excuse me, then everything it include itself in power, power into will, will into appetite, and appetite and universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must, must make perforce and universal prey, and last eat up himself. And this neglection of degree it is, that by a pace grows backward with a purpose it hath to climb. This Neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it has to climb. In other words, as it tries, as someone tries to climb out of this, of this quicksand, one further sinks into it. It's exactly what that line means. 
the generals disdained by him one step below, he by the next, that next by him beneath. So every step, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. This is the mimetic nightmare. Everything is up for grabs. And every hint of a superior social position or prestige provokes envy and all that flows from that. And uh, will into power, power into appetite, and appetite the universal wolf eats up itself. <laughs> well, it's just an absolutely marvelous, amazing description of how the cultural crisis uh, is uh, begun. Culture, you might say, exists in order to avoid that state of affairs that Ulysses has described. So if you untune degree, if, if, you, if the distinctions begin to fall apart, then what? Chaos. See? Okay. And, and uh, endless rivalry. Uh, everything is exampled. All the rivalries are examples for each other uh, until at last an envious, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. Everybody is totally mimetically entangled with everybody else, trying to find some little scrap of data on which to build a, a set of distinctions. For instance, the color of one's skin or the amount of uh, money or the, what, the color of the shirt, you see. There are places in Los Angeles where if you go with a certain color shirt because it represents the, the, the gang's color of another area, your, your, your life is in peril. The desperation for distinctions in a world where they dissolve, okay? So we're all up to par on that, all right? Well, here's the, here's the epistle of James. My brother, do not try to combine faith in Jesus Christ, our glorified Lord, with the making of distinctions. Now, suppose a man comes into your synagogue, beautifully dressed and with a gold ring on, and at the same time a poor man comes in in shabby clothes, and you take notice of the well-dressed man and say, come this way to the best seats, and then you tell the poor man, stand over there, or you can sit on the floor at my footrest. Can't you see that you have used two different standards in your mind and turned yourselves into judges at that? As soon as you make distinctions between classes of people you are committing sin. Well, now we have Ulysses and we have James. Now what are we going to do? I think they're both absolutely right. I think they're both absolutely right. Without the protections that the distinctions provide, the scope of the mimetic epidemic has no limit. Go back. I want to go back and quote something that I quoted last week uh, from Rene Girard's work. He's talking about the uh, mimetic rivalries that Ulysses has just depicted. He says the subject. Now that now we're talking, the, the rivalry would be a kind of a triangle between two subjects and an object. Two subjects vying for possession of the object. 
The subject has no wish to triumph completely over the rival. He has no wish for the rival to triumph completely over him. In the first event, the object would fall to him, but it would have lost all value. In the second event, the object would attain an infinite value, but it would be forever outside his reach. However painful it may be, the triangular relationship is less painful than a decision that would end it one way or another. That is precisely why it has a tendency to perpetuate itself and to reproduce itself if it has collapsed. Rivalry is intolerable, but the absence of rivalry is even more intolerable. It brings the subject up against nothingness. And I want to hang on to that word for a second. But then Girard goes on with one more sentence. That is why the subject makes every effort to persevere or begin again, often relying on the undisclosed complicity of partners who are aiming for similar goals. Now, when he says partners here, he, he means they can either be allies or rivals. It doesn't matter, because if the purpose is to regenerate the conflictual mimesis, we need our rivals and our allies. So our, our conspiratorial partners can be either one, as long as they participate in the, re, in the reconfiguration of the mimetic uh, entanglement. And he says, because to abandon that is to come face to face with nothingness, all of us have the tendency, at the moment when its abandonment is possible, we have the tendency to reconvene it so as not to have to face nothing. <laughs> this is like a trial. We had Ulysses here, and then we had James here. Now we have Gerard telling us that uh, if, to abandon it would be nothingness, and that's why we recreate it. Okay, well, this is Jean Sullivan, who's a French novelist who, who in his memoirs wrote this. Instead of satisfying our desires, Jesus sends us back to ourselves at a deeper level. Morality, politics, economics, the intellectual harmony I keep looking for in the Gospels, none of these are the concern of Jesus. He points in another direction. He drives me toward nothingness. Okay. Now, you just we just have to put those two things together. They weren't written with, with an eye to each other, of course. But I think we have to put those two things together and to, to, to get the kind of predicament that we're investigating. But let me go on with John Sullivan just to get the sweep of what he's saying. I'm taking a couple of little excerpts from his, uh, his, uh, his journal. He says, Jesus is for the disappearance of classes, but not for the class struggle. See that? Now, now, that just one sentence is such an insight into history. It's such an insight into how it is at the very moment when it's possible to abandon the mimetic entanglement, we recapitulate it on new terms based on the slogan that should have associated with its abandonment. See? A classless reality that gives way immediately to a class struggle, which is the mimetic entanglement all over again. And then Sullivan goes on to say that the full impact of the Gospels uh, would mean cultural chaos. That's why, he writes, the evangelical councils and certain precepts of Jesus became the preserve of monasteries. 
If realized politically, they would call into question the order of the world. And, he says somewhat tongue-in-cheek, certain ecclesiastical institutions which are its reflection. <laughs> John Sullivan, by the way, was a Catholic priest as well as being a novelist. Uh, but he took uh, opportunities to drive the point home, close to home, when he had the chance. Well, you're getting kind of the feel of this. We're, this is really, we're involved in a, in a genuine predicament. And uh, there's no way of, of wishing it away. There's no way of, 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 of coming away with some nice little response to it. And that's why uh, the, the history of the Christian movement has been such a, such a, uh, a mixed one. Uh, because it's a genuine problem. Well, I don't know. I hope that provides a background for what's going to surprise us this time in King Lear, certainly what is, I've found interesting this time in King Lear. I don't think I ever paid the least bit of attention to the first lines of this play until this time through. Kent and Gloucester come in. Kent is, uh, is Lear's... Uh, uh, stalwart servant and Gloucester is the uh, old old friend of Lear and Kent says I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall now why would Shakespeare begin a play with that line you see uh, Shakespeare has a way of uh, putting these early lines to great use now, either that line is irrelevant, in which case it's hard to imagine William Shakespeare wrote it, or it has something, it tells us something. What the line says, let's do Gloucester's response first. Kent, Kent says, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. And Gloucester says, it did always seem so to us, but now in the division of the kingdom... It appears not which the dukes he values most. Now, the Duke of Albany and the Duke of Cornwall are married to, to Lear's two older daughters. And there is reason to, uh, to prefer one over the other, if for no other reason, that one, that one of the daughters is, is, is older than the other. Uh, if one's looking for some logic to uh, maintain a, system, a hierarchical system, a system of a degree, uh, there, there's, there's enough logic around to support that. But the play starts by saying, well, I thought we had a hierarchical structure of, uh, of favor coming from the throne down to the dukedom. I thought we had a hierarchical, hierarchical structure of favor, but apparently we do not. We have two dukedoms that stand in identical, equal favor with the king, who is the immediate hierarch over these, over that level of reality. You see what I'm saying? It's nothing to us until later on, and we see what happens. So that's just a little, a little tagline at the very beginning, and that's left aside. Now we go to the. Uh, we get another little half scene here, which uh, is curious. Uh, uh, 
Kent's uh, Gloucester's son, bastard son, Edmund, is there with Gloucester. Kent says, is, this, is not this your son, my lord? His breeding, sir, hath been at my charge. I have so often blushed to acknowledge him that now I am brazen to it. And Kent says, I cannot conceive you. Sir, this young fellow's mother could, whereupon she grew round-wombed and had indeed, sir, a son for her cradle ere she had a husband for her bed. But I have another son, sir, by order of the law, some year elder than this, who yet is no dearer in my account. Though this knave came something saucily to the world before he was sent for, yet was his mother fair. There was good sport at his making. Well, what's happened here? You have two sons and a father, and there is reason to support a logic which would array them in a hierarchical order of preference, the reason being a, a technical cultural one. One of them was uh, born after somebody had participated in a ritual and signed a piece of paper, and one was not. But Gloucester says, they're equal to me. They're equal to me. And we think, well, that's marvelous. And it is marvelous. But notice what's happening as the play starts out. Let's talk about equality. Okay? Let's really talk about equality. So, we're setting this thing up where everybody's going to be equal. So then Lear comes in with great fanfare. And... Uh, the Duke of Cornwall and, and his wife, uh, Regan, and the Duke of Albany and his wife, Goneril, and Cordelia, uh, the young, fair uh, third daughter of Lear. Meantime, Lear says, meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map there. And this is really marvelous, you see. Gets the map out right there on stage, and there it is. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom. Oh, watch out for the triangle, will you please? Watch out. Shakespeare knows that the triangle is the cultural DNA. He knows it, and he knows how to use it so marvelously. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths while we unburdened crawl toward death. Our son of Cornwall and you, our no less loving son of Albany, we have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers, that future strife may be prevented now. See? Well-intentioned. Now, the difference between Shakespeare and Lear is that Lear doesn't know about the... the, the doesn't realize that the triangle is the cultural DNA, and Shakespeare does. Lear has the best of motives. What he wants to do is settle this thing so there won't be any squabbling after he dies. See? But the problem is, it's got a triangle in it. <laughs> it's a deadly situation. So, the princes, France and Burgundy, great rivals in our daughters, in our youngest daughter's love, long in our court have made their amorous sojourn, and here are to be answered. Now, he says, tell me, my daughters, now this, remember Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, in that great scene at the, uh, at uh, Frank's Chop House, when it was time to be candid. Somebody, there was about to be some candor in the situation, and Willie Loman said, now, wait a minute. He saw it coming, and he says, wait a minute. I want to explain to you. The woods are burning. I'm broke. 
I can't pay my bills. I've just been fired. I have nowhere to turn. I'm desperate. Your mother needs to hear a, a good piece of news. Now, what do you have to say? <laughs> Telescoping, see? So that we, we, we filter out anything we don't want to hear. Now watch Lear do his version of it. Tell me, my daughters, parenthesis, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state. In other words, I'm about to be, I'm about to, uh, uh, you know, pour forth the bounty. So tell us, which of you shall we say doth love us most? You see? that we our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge. Now, there's three of them. And he says, which loves us most so that we can give the biggest peace to the, to the one that does? Now, this is like uh, the, in, the, in the wedding of Peleus and, and Thetis uh, in mythology, the, the parents of Achilles, they didn't invite Eris, the goddess of strife. So she came to the wall and took the golden apple and her little note says, for the fairest, and threw it over into the, into the party, you see. And the goddesses were on it, like three of them. And then the question was, which one? Was that one? So he says, which, which of you loves us most? so that we can dispense our bounty accordingly. And Goneril is, she's up to it, you see. Sir, I love you more than word can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight. Now, the, uh, the theme of eyesight will run right through this play. It's, th this play is really about seeing, the ability to see, and, and uh, to, to to uh, convert that metaphor into the one we've been using, it involves uh, the transformation of one whose eyes are focused on the plot and who is blind to the story to one who comes to focus on the story and is, relatively speaking, blind to the plot. So it has to do with seeing because the story and the plots are always... Uh, simultaneously present. It's not as though we have one over here and one over there. They're always both there. It, the question is, which one are you seeing? So this is a story about seeing, and the theme comes up over and over again. So dearer than eyesight, she says, dearer than eyesight, space and liberty, beyond what can be valued, rich or rare, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, Cordelia to, to herself says, what shall Cordelia speak? Love and be silent. She's, she knows right away that uh, she's going to be outdone by these two. And so Lear says, uh, here's this wonderful uh, 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 expression of love and points to the map. Of all these bounds, even from this line to this, with shadowy forest and with champagnes rich and plenteous rivers and wide-skirted meads, etc., etc., this is yours. So he marks off. And now he says, now to Regan. She says, I am made of that self-metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. Now, what's that mean? What that means is, 
I'm equal to my sister. That simply says, I'm equal to my sister. I am made of that self-metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. So get out your stopwatches and let's see how long equality lasts. I am made of that self-metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love. Only she comes too short. <laughs> Only she comes too short. That's it, you see. Now, after you, you know, when you, uh, when you have witnessed uh, several dozen Shakespearean avalanches, <laughs> you become, you become keen on trying to find when the first little pebble slips. <laughs> And to me, in this play, it's right there. Only she comes too short. And that's how long equality lasted, you see? And the slippage of degree has set this in motion, just as the speech of, the, uh, of Ulysses indicated. And now, let me go back to the, to the speech of Ulysses. And now, this neglection of degree, it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. You see what's happening with Regan? She tries to get a leg up on Goneril, and you can feel the whole thing start to slip underneath. And so Lear hears this wonderful uh, expression of her love, and then he says, To thee and thine hereditary ever remain this ample third of our fair kingdom, no less in space, validity, and pleasure than that conferred on Goneril. Equal. Equal. Now, our joy, although our last and least, to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sister's? Now, it's already divided into thirds. So the third part is already uh, there on the map. And it is more opulent than the other two. You see that? So, what can you say? And you see, he loves Cordelia best of all. And he's convinced that she loves him best of all. He's right. But he thinks that, she's, that she will lower herself to the little game that's being played there, and she won't. So, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sister? Speak. Nothing, my lord. Nothing, my lord. Now, remember, uh, Gerard said, if we abandon that mimetic entanglement, we come up against nothing. And so, instead of abandoning it, we reconfigure it in a new setting. And, and John Sullivan said, the, the Jesus of the Gospels is not interested in morality, in economics, in politics, in cultural life, in intellectual integrity. He's interested in bringing me face-to-face uh, -face with nothing. So here's a critical moment. What can you say? And she says, nothing, my Lord. And Lear, nothing? 
nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Five times. She says, nothing, my Lord. Lear says, nothing. She says, nothing. He says, nothing will come of nothing. Five nothing. There's no question what Shakespeare's doing. That's the theme of this play. The theme of this play is Lear falling out very gradually, very painfully, with two steps forward and one step back all the while, falling out of the medic entanglement, doesn't get out of it until the very, very end of the play. But it's this painful process of falling out of it and coming to face with nothing. Nothing. So this play, in a way, when Lear says here, nothing will come of nothing, you could say this play is written in order to decide whether or not that's true. But again, remember uh, how Willie Loman sent these little messages to his sons about what to say to it. Likewise, Lear. Lear really is, ex- is explicit here. He says, Cordelia, how, how Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you mar your fortune. He says, look, I'm not interested in, we're not talking truth here. We, I just want you to say the words. It's already on the map. Everything is in, the. you know, it's underway. It's all scripted. Simply say your part and it's yours. And she doesn't. And here's the thing that Shakespeare does about his kings so often. And, and, and explicitly later on, Lear will refer to it, which is that the kings uh, have been hereditary kings, you see, from, from birth are uh, learned that they can do no wrong. And they're always in an environment which, uh, which, uh, which satisfies their every whim. They don't realize that the world might not do that sometimes. And Lear just goes into a tirade because his youngest daughter didn't play according to the script. And he loses it. And Kent tries, and so he banishes his daughter. I mean, sends her away with uh, uh, with no dowry. And uh, Kent, his loyal servant, tries to intervene. And uh, he tells Kent not to come between the dragon and his wrath. But then he says to Kent, I loved her most. And uh, so the whole thing was set up so that Cordelia would get the bigger share. He turns now. Remember, we have the map here. It's all there so graphically. We have the map, the two equal parts, and this one, the bigger, the third one, which is bigger. And then he turns. This is he turns to uh, the two dukes. He says, "Cornwall and Albany, with my daughter's dowers, digest the third. It's like throwing a hand grenade into the situation. See, the, it's the baited trap. Digest the third. He doesn't, he doesn't go over there and draw the line, you get this and you get that. No, digest the third. And then he says, this coronet, part between you, takes his crown. Just take half of it. So equality with this, with this uh, unsettled question of who gets what of that third part left. Now, what we're, what we're looking at here is a kind of the structural dynamic of, of these 
of these uh, of this mimetic entanglement. It's really a structural question. It's almost architectonic. I want to take a look at Act One, Scene Two. Sometimes Shakespeare tucks some of his best stuff in Act One, Scene Two, and it's certainly true of of this play. Edmund, who's the bastard son of Gloucester, is uh, there with a letter of his own, a forged letter from his brother Edgar, and he's holding it. And he's saying a soliloquy to himself, Thou nature art my goddess, to thy law my services are bound. When he's talking nature here, what he means is tooth and claw. The survival of the fittest is what he's talking about. Thou nature art my goddess, to thy law my services are bound. Now one of the questions will be, are his services services to anybody other than himself, and is he bound to anything other than himself? He says it's to nature, but really it's the tooth and claw nature. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? Notice these two phrases, the plague of custom and the curiosity of nations. What he's talking about is cultural uh, distinctions, cultural biases, customs. You see, uh, he's, he, he, Gloucester has affection equally for, for uh, the two, his two sons, but by law, the land goes to Edgar, the legitimate son. And so he's saying... He's saying all these cultural uh, conventions are arbitrary. And he goes on to explore that. Why bastard? Wherefore base? When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous, my shape as true as honest madam's issue, why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? This is Shakespeare hitting us over the head with it. Boom, boom, boom. Why? Where does that come from? And and what he's saying here is, I'm equal. The point is that he is absolutely right. So what he's saying is, I'm equal. See, I'm equal. Just like with the uh, Lear's daughters. How long will the equality last? Here's the speech. Why, therefore, base, etc., etc., when my dimensions are as well compact, my mind is generous, my shape is true, as honest madam's issue, why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base, who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth with a dull and stale, tired bed go to the creating of a whole tribe of fops got tween asleep and wake? Well, then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. See, this is... Of the one who has been left out saying, hey, I'm equal, and in the very next breath saying, I'm taking over. Well, Gloucester walks in, and uh, he's mumbling to himself, old Gloucester, how did it happen? Kent is banished, and so on. The king is gone, leaving. Uh... And he says, all this done upon the gad, which means as though he was bitten by a gadfly. It was just like that. Lear lost it, you see, and just went into this tirade. Upon the gad. And uh, 
Edmund is on cue to, to, to play the, the role that he's going to play with this forged letter from his brother Edgar. And Gloucester, Edmund, how now? What news? So please, your lordship, none. He puts the letter, tucks it away very quickly, but not so quickly that Gloucester doesn't see. And Gloucester says, what paper are you reading? Nothing, my lord. Ah, ah, we've heard those words before, have we not? Nothing, my lord. No? What need then that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket? The quality of nothing hath not such need to hide itself. Let's see. Let's see. And Shakespeare's saying, yes, let's. <laughs> Shall we? Let's see. Come, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacle. Now, Shakespeare is just having a romp. Gloucester is, will have his eyes put out later in the play so that he can see. So acclimated is he and are we to, the, to this mimetic entanglement that sometimes it requires that we shut down the senses. And that's one of the things that the contemplative and, and uh, monastic tradition uh, sometimes urges on us that we actually have to shut, shut down the sens sensory apparatus in order to, uh, to, to awaken to something else. But I think it's actually something even more interesting than that. I shall not need spectacles. Because a spectacle, in the first instance, is a, is a spectacle, an elaborate performance that does, for most of us, or at least this is Shakespeare's appreciation, that does for most people, if it's well done, what it did for Polydor in Cymbeline. And old Gloucester says, I will not need spectacle. A little piece of paper will do. And this is, I think, Shakespeare's joke, almost. It's Shakespeare's joke about the Renaissance proclivity to adopt the mimetic Entanglement. So, so ripe were people for the onset of the mimetic entanglement that we didn't need spectacles anymore. Almost anything would do. The witches in the witches in in Macbeth could just drop a little hint about the, uh, Macbeth's ascendancy. You see, uh, Iago could just make a little change the tone of his voice, and Othello fell for it. You see what I mean? In, the, in the, the thing we looked at last week, Paolo and Francesca, they read a book. 